The Pinball Network is online. Launching the Aussie Pinball Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Aussie Pinball Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Mike from HomePin. Mike's had a long history of pinball maintenance and a more recent history of pinball manufacturing for the Australian market in particular. Mike's been known to be very opinionated on certain things, and we found out some of his very strong opinions in this interview. We find out what he thinks about Thunderbirds being the worst pinball machine ever made, in some people's opinions. We find out why you have to spell International Rescue at any point in your life. And we find out there's a bombshell coming. Can you imagine a sub $5,000 game in the near future? Listen along and find out more. And meanwhile, please feel free to sing along into the chorus of the angels. Am I ever going to see your face again? So all the way from overseas in Taiwan, I'm joined by Mike. And I'll leave it at Mike because I'm sure I'm going to get the Kolonowski bit wrong. That's what, close how do enough. You say it? That's close <laughs> enough. That's close enough. Uh, he's going to chat to me today about the life, the universe and everything of his life and home pin uh, today. Thanks for uh, coming along to chat. Not a problem. It's good that you've actually got a day off work for a change to be able to chat. Mm-hmm. As you can tell by my voice, I'm having a day off work to get over my latest bout of COVID-19. But I'm on the tail end of it, so it'll all be good. So... Why are we here? What's life all about? Tell me where the journey started way back. Well, you mean the pinball journey or... or Yeah, I don't... For many of us... I don't know your full meaning of life. Your pinball journey. Where did okay. that all begin? Well, I guess I guess it started when I was 16. I was apprenticed to a company in Brisbane, north side of Brisbane, that manufactured radio control systems for both modelers and government departments. And we built those radio control systems from the ground up. We made everything in-house, including the, the box that we shipped the, the finished product out in, the foam packing for the box. We, took, we bought raw sheet aluminium that was clad it was it had a special name it was a loomy clad or something like that and we cut that material and folded it and made our own transmitter cases we assembled made our own printed circuit boards the whole lot from the ground up so from a very early start i was very interested in manufacturing because i was involved in the process from the very beginning right through to the finished product so you know that evolved obviously that stuck in my mind and um, that's that's sort of formed my my future years i guess and that was in brisbane yes Gaithorn. what year we what year we talking about that's a good question um, not, probably, not to date you not to shame you 
in the sixties anyway, which is before the seventies anyway. Yeah, which is unusual for Australia at that time yes. to dive in to electronic circuit board printing and full-on manufacturing. And sure. Brisbane would have been a bit of a sleepy town back Absolutely. in those days. Absolutely. I remember taking my first aeroplane trip with the boss. We went to Silvertone, who was basically the only other manufacturer in Australia, and they were in Sydney, and I took my first trip one day with him in a 727, an ANSET 727. I'm Brisbane to Sydney, and uh, that was that was state of the art. That was you know amazing stuff. And we just went down for the day. We flew to Sydney for the day, went and visited the Silvertone factory, exchanged a few ideas, picked up a few bits, and flew back that afternoon. That was just mind blowing for me as a 16, 17 year old. Now, I think the key word in all this you said, am I right? Where you said government? Yes, yes, government <laughs> departments. Uh, they, I don't think this could be done as a private enterprise for sure. Uh, at the time, there were, and, and sadly still today, there are many farmers who um, don't, who haven't acquired the skills and so on to drive their tractors correctly on farm properties, and uh, and a lot of hobby farmers as well that roll their tractor and get squashed underneath it. Sadly, and it's still happening today. It's crazy. But um, at the time, um, we were approached by one of the agriculture department or somebody, I forget which one, and uh, they asked us to remote control a tractor for them so that they could take it to various shows and, and uh, you know, shows in the, in, the, in the bush and demonstrate to farmers how not to do things. And they would deliberately steer the tractor like this and tell, you know, Joe Farmer, oh, this is how you would normally do this and this is how you would normally, yeah, that's true, that's correct, well, watch this. And they would deliberately mimic it and roll the tractor, remote control tractor, so nobody was hurt. And that was a big, big hit. Um, that was one of our, our forays into the government thing and that worked extremely well. It was very early days in all of this sort of stuff, especially, as you say, for Australia. It was all that sort of stuff was made in Taiwan or made in Japan, you know, basically. Yeah. And here we were pretty much cutting edge, I guess, which I didn't quite realise at the time. But right. Yes. So how did that switch over to pinball? Well, I, um, I was apprenticed to this place, PSA, Proportional Systems Australia, and... Uh, the only apprenticeship available at that time was radio and television mechanic. Uh, that was the only electronic apprenticeship that was available in Brisbane. And so that's the one they shoehorned me into. And uh, I went to technical college at Yoronga and did my apprenticeship there. And when I came out of there, I was poached by a, uh, a TV repair place and eventually ended up at EMI, which, for those who don't know, is actually HMV, his master's voice. So I was a, a field service technician for... EMI for about a year and then a family friend asked me to uh, visit him when I was about I must have been about 19 I guess a family friend asked me to uh, visit him for beers on a Friday afternoon at his place of work music time at East Brisbane and I had no real idea what he did or whatever he was a you know a remote family friend so I went over there after work on a Friday got there and discovered that this was an exceptionally large uh, pinball operator uh, who actually specialised in jukeboxes. They had hundreds of jukeboxes and did party hire jukebox. But one of their one of their business lines was pinball machines in pubs and clubs and so on. And what had happened, unbeknownst to me, because I wasn't particularly into pinball, I knew of pinball and probably played it occasionally, but I wasn't that you know involved in it. But what had happened uh, was uh, Bally Playboy was released and uh, this operator used to just have a standing order of two or three new machines of every new model that came out and so three new Valley Playboys got delivered to them and 
the technicians there who were all ex PMG uh, telecom for those who don't know what PMG was uh, opened up the back box and all their jaws all dropped because here was all this electronic stuff that they had no clue about. They were fine fixing the EM machines. They had no problem at all because that was effectively, a, you know, the next step from telephone exchanges and so on. But um, when they looked in the back of the, the Bally Playboy, it was like, wow, what are we going to do with this? So, yeah, they just didn't, um, they didn't know what to do with it. So that's why I, I obviously discovered why I'd been invited over because I had just come out of my apprenticeship and uh, here I was an electronics technician and um, could I sort of give them a few pointers? And I looked in the back box and, and just looked around the boards and, you know, looking back on it these days, it's a pretty simple system. But then it was state of the art. It was advanced, It was way in advance of anything else that was publicly or, or you know, available as a, as a mass market product. There were no such thing as phones and video recorders or anything like that. Colour TV had only just hit the market a few years before. And so this was absolutely state-of-the-art stuff. But I could point out all these, this row of transistors is obviously something to do with you know, driving all the solenoids in the machine and blah, blah, blah. And they were flabbergasted that I could point all this out without any knowledge of the machine at all. The long and short is I'd, I'd had a gutful working in the field with EMI anyway, and I started work there the following Monday. So There you go. Yeah, and that was my foray into uh, pinball machines. I started there, and I basically spent the first three or four months uh, in the factory there repairing electronic boards and things because these guys would go out to a job and they wouldn't have a clue and they'd be shorting stuff out and blowing up boards. And oh, Fortunately, my boss was pretty smart cookie, Hale Anderson, and uh, he, um, he, he was ahead of the curve, absolutely, and he bought all the factory test jigs and things, so the workshop was well fitted out and... Uh, They'd bring back a board out of something and you know, I'd be able to plug it into the test jig and at least fix up what was going on. And that itself was a, well, a learning curve for me, but as well as a learning curve for all the technicians there. There was about, about eight or ten staff. It was quite a big business. The problem for me as the te- technician in the, in the factory, I would repair the board. It had a blown transistor, whatever it was. I would put a tag on it as to what I had done to it and... That was how I left it initially, but I didn't realise what I had to do was to put a tag on it to say, do not turn this on until you've changed this coil. Because right. obviously the diode on the coil was shorted or something was wrong with the coil. And that, yeah. Because time and again, I would give them a board. It had come back the next morning. Oh, you didn't fix this properly, you idiot. And uh, no, they'd blown the transistor up again because mm-hmm. they hadn't addressed the actual root cause of the problem. Uh, so... You know, I changed my approach to things to tell them on the tag, not what I'd fixed, but what they still had to fix. Mm-hmm. Um, that seemed to halve the problems. And uh, so that, that was my first foray into electronic pinball machines, which is mostly early uh, ballet stuff. The place, Music Time, had, had every brand. We had a lot of stuff. The Gottliebs were probably the most reliable at that time, but they took the least money because they weren't the most what's the word impressive i suppose machines to play but they were good steady earners for the boss so he kept buying them it it helped that his mate was also the distributor so he would always get three or four of the new model of those and we very rarely saw them for repair apart from the usual stuff you know broken flipper bat or whatever Uh, they were quite reliable probably the least reliable and i hate to say it because they're my favorite machines were the early williams ss they were Okay. Nightmare. They, I remember one particular flash. I don't think we ever actually sighted it. 
because it was just a, an electronic nightmare. Those boards, they're just rubbish. They really are, and I don't, there's no other word for it. The design concept was just the dumbest thing I'd ever seen. Yeah, you know, having a 40-pin connector with, with pretty moderate quality connectors connecting between the, the actual microprocessor and, and all the I.O. chips is just the dumbest move I've ever seen. Uh, you know, we never got to the bottom, as far as I, I recall. I mean, I was only at Music Time a couple of years, but uh, I, I don't think we ever got that machine working. I think we eventually scrapped it for parts, uh, right. which was a bit of a shame. But again, you know, machines in those days were only $2,000 each anyway, so it wasn't a huge problem. The flash is probably worth double what it, even, even in its bad condition not working, it's probably worth double that now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no doubt. No doubt at all. So how long did you stay in that job for? I moved around after that. I was there for 18 months, a couple of years. I, I don't recall precisely, but I moved to a couple of other small operators for a little while and uh, ended up at Queensland Automatics, who offered me quite a good job on the bench again. Uh, that was mostly repairing. I was sort of put in there to mostly repair monitors because their main business wasn't uh, pinball. It was uh, arcade machines because they were big by then. And they had lots and lots of arcade machines and uh, inline gambling machines, which fortunately I wasn't involved in. I, I was sidelined to all of that stuff. They had different people to work on that stuff. But when I got there, I remember clearly the day I started there and uh, I was just asking the, the two IC around the place, what, what's this for and what's that for? And I was, here's your workbench. And if you need anything else, if you need any equipment, let us know. Here's where we keep the spare parts, blah, blah, blah. And there was this mountain of monitor chassis in one corner and I don't exaggerate there was more than a hundred chassis and they all look pretty much identical and I said what's going on here what, what's this pile of chassis over here oh they're all dud ones they've been brought back by the field technicians they just swapped them over and put a new chassis in and this company was buying them in like half a container of these chassis at a time so they were paying very little for them but um, we <laughs> I said well what are, you, what are you doing with them what's the story oh well we just sort of when they bring them back we just acknowledge that they've they've exchanged one and we throw the dead one in the corner okay so i had a look at them and by the end of day three i think i'd fixed better than half of the ones that were in the pile <laughs> I junked sort of a third of them for, for parts to fix the others because we didn't have much in the way of parts it wasn't worth their while they're only paying 20 30 dollars a chassis yeah. uh, but over the course of a few days i fixed at least half of them and wow. put them back into service that was my tv technician background coming in because yeah, they were they are very much a simplified TV. Uh, yeah, very very little in them. Yeah, without sort of the scanning circuits and, and amplifying circuits, but no receiver, no receiver parts. So they were very simple things. To a lot of them with. might have even been monochrome. A lot of them back in those days. Uh, some were. They, this company was pretty much on the cutting edge, though. They they had they were buying most of the newer stuff, and they were getting it okay. direct from Japan and, and Korea, and um, a lot of Korean stuff we had. And it was actually quite good for, for early stuff, quite surprising. Okay. And they were a quick win for me. I mean, if I if I got to work in the morning and by 5 o'clock I'd fix six chassis, that was a win for me, you know, and, and yeah. I proved that I was a worthwhile addition to the staff. That was that was probably my point, being a you know, 22, 23-year-old, you know. About yeah. that point, the Fitzgerald inquiry kicked in. Oops. <laughs> and the company I was working for, because they had inline gambling machines, was quite heavily involved in all of that and... Um, I, and for, uh, and for okay. those who don't know, just an editor's note, Fitzgerald Inquiry looked into uh, Queensland Government and the Queensland Police, Police Force, Force yeah. who uh, worked together quite closely and made a lot of people, well, a few people, very, very rich. 
Well, there was a lot of corruption going on and backhanders and secret monies left in secret toilet cubicles all over the place and stuff. Some stuff I know, some stuff I, I had overheard, uh, but it's not really relevant these days. That's long gone, thank goodness. But uh, I was actually transferred by the company just before all that problem to their Cairns branch. So I went up there to, to look after the Cairns area and liked it, Karen. My late wife flew up and had a look around. Yeah, this is good. You know, we don't have much opportunity in Brisbane. Let's let's move. So we moved to Cairns, and that was uh, I don't know, four, nearly forty years ago now. I guess yeah, it would be forty wow. years ago. So um, they got you out. You've been locked away in the back rooms repairing machines. So they moved yeah. you up to Cairns. Yes. When did you suddenly decide to start doing it for yourself? Well, I, in Cairns, my job there was was sort of pseudo manager, where I answered to Brisbane, but I had to basically keep everything that was out on site working. So I had a sort of bit of everything as well as PR with the site owners and so on. With the Fitzgerald inquiry, about oh, 18 months after we moved there, basically the company folded because of that. And uh, I was suddenly out of work, didn't know what to do. So uh, Karen and I decided to start our own small business repairing TVs, uh, Cans Electronics. And we started that and ran that quite successfully for 15 years before selling it on. It enabled us to build a very nice house in the rainforest up in Coranda, which is 30 minutes drive from Cairns. And uh, we lived there for 30 plus years. Wow. And, um, yeah, very nice and, setup. And, w- and when did Home Pin take its roots? Was that well, up there? Yeah, well, after I sold Cairns Electronics, I was at a bit of a loose end, didn't quite know what to do. Uh, someone had some of a friend of a friend had uh, found out that I used to fix pinball machines. They had something that needed work. Asked me if I could have a look. I, I, like I say, I was at a loose end. I didn't have anything else to do, so I went and had a bit of a look at it. And I forget what it was, a Matahari or something, something pretty simple, <clears throat> and was able to sort that out for them. Then I got to thinking, well, you know, this might be an interesting sideline. So I did a bit more investigation. The internet had sort of started to, to hit by then. And, uh, you know, younger people listening to this podcast probably can't even imagine uh, times pre-internet, but that's how it was, and uh, pre-mobile phone, pre-internet. So I I sort of did a bit of investigation and realised that there were lots of people who were repairing these machines and bringing them back to life and buying dead ones, and and that some of the parts were very, very difficult to find. And some boards, like some power supply boards in particular, were, were getting a bit crispy or you know, over-repaired from many, many years of being bodged in the field. And, you know, and I'm not I'm not knocking any person in inverted commas technician who repairs it poorly in the field because I've done plenty of field repairs myself that I'm not, a, that I'm not proud of. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a very, very horrible business fixing a pinball machine in a, in a greasy fish and chip shop uh, with 10 kids milling around and grabbing at everything in your toolbox. It's a nightmare. Where do you live? In the city. Do you have a house? Apartment. On a rent? Rent. What do you do for a living? Lots of things. Where's your office? I don't have one. How come? I don't need one. Where's your wife? Don't have one. How come? It's a long story. Do you have kids? No, I don't. How come? It's an even longer story. Are you my dad's brother? What's your record for consecutive questions asked? 38. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, knocking anyone who does repairs like that. You just do what you got to do, get it working and get out of there. Uh, but you know, because of years and years of repairs like that, Many of these boards were pretty much trashed. So uh, I figured there was a bit of an opportunity to perhaps make some of the ones. And at about the same time, um, I was on a on an Australian site, a pinball site, and someone there asked if I could have a look at possibly making a replacement um, mist board, 
multi miss multi board whatever I forget the precise name Bram Stoker's Dracula Dracula yeah. yep. and apparently it was quite a common problem at the time and uh, the funny thing was that I had just bought a Dracula at an auction in cans in in a million pieces broken glass glass all through the play field and I bought it I forget a few hundred dollars at an auction and I never drink wine I said to the guy, well, look, actually, I've got a Dracula. So that gives me the incentive to sort of patch this thing up, get it working, see what's going on. And this particular board is, is incorrectly labelled in the service manual as a 24 opto board, when in fact it's a 24-inch opto board. Hey, Chris, what's with your leg? Oh, my <laughs> God, that's not your leg! And um, there's a subtle difference because I'm looking at things thinking, why, why, why this is only a single opto, what's going on here? And it took me a, a, a few minutes to twig that that they didn't mean it had 24 separate optos. Like, there's other boards. The reason it threw me was because there's lots of other boards in film. There's a 3 opto, a 7 opto, a 10 opto, a 16 opto. And I'm thinking, 24 opto, it's not possible. Look how small this board is. And then I thought, ah, it's 24 inches because it spans 24 inches. And that was the reason. So uh, I set about looking at that, found that you couldn't find one of the chips that's used on that board is absolutely unobtainium to anybody. It's not recreated by anyone. It was a short... It was a special chip made for a special purpose that didn't really take off. And so it fell by the wayside and um, there just isn't any around. It's as simple as that. And um, I set about actually re-engineering that. I sat in my, by then I built a little little workshop in Coranda and I sat there and spent a couple of weeks actually re-engineering it using a completely different system. The original board uses wireless to communicate. And uh, this is what tricks a lot of people trying to repair it. They don't quite understand what's going on with it, many people. And um, I, rather than go down that route, I used audio. And uh, I, because I found some chips that, that operated in the audio spectrum, just above the audio spectrum, I think it runs at about 28K or something, which was close enough to the, the other board to make it work. Anyway, long story short, I eventually got all that perfected. And um, since then, we've made and sold, I don't know, hundreds, hundreds, over 500 of those boards with very few issues. And I'd like to think we've helped a lot of people get their machine going that otherwise they would have had difficulty with. Since then, you know, copying is a sincerest form of flattery. There's a company in Europe that's copied my board um, just nut for bolt. They've just copied it exactly. And uh, I know that because I, I engineered the thing from the ground up and it's different to anything else out there. They haven't just taken an original board and recreated it, which is what we mostly do because they're simply not available. They actually copied my board nut for bolt. I'm, I'm pleased to say when I contacted them about it, they were uh, they were very nice about it and added a little credit to me on their website. So anyone yeah. who's interested can see that credit on the website. So I, I can't see Cairns being a centre of manufacturing for anything where were you no 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 it was it was it was very much a hobby business that that karen and i just played with under the house and and you know it slowly slowly grew i'd looked at it and then decided there was another board that that needed to be made and then another and then another and before i knew it i had a a small range of 20 boards okay uh, it looked like it might turn into something of a of a hobby business or even better and And were you getting manufactured overseas and bought into australia for the pcbs Oh, look, PCBs for a long time. Only in the early days were they made in Australia. They're not made in Australia anymore. There's one company that does make some high-end stuff, but that's all for satellite industries and and high-end stuff. Uh, There's no domestic manufacturer for printed circuit boards in Australia at all. And um, it all comes from China, like it or not. And uh, that's just what happens. And the Chinese boards are exceptionally good quality. Anyone who buys them will will tell you the same story. They're very, very well made. 
And that's something the Chinese have really perfected. You've got to hand them full marks for that. Is that why you moved? Um, no, no. Um, you know, one thing led to another. And um, I had started a small trading business. Um, again, a couple of business friends that I'd made asked me to look for certain things and, and see if I could help them source things. I started going to China. I went to a big, the big yearly or bi-yearly trade show in China, a Canton Fair. For those who have been will know what I'm talking about. It's just astronomically large. You can't, I can't describe how big it is. Uh, it, it opens for seven days with something like 20,000 exhibitors, then closes for a few days and reopens for another seven days with a different 20,000 exhibitors. It's just so massive. You, it's not physically possible to go there, even if you, even if you walk at a brisk pace and don't stop anywhere, it's simply physically not possible to visit every exhibitor. Not possible. It can't be done. Not physically possible. That's how big this thing is. It's massive. You have to very carefully look at what is on display before you go there and narrow down the areas you want to, you want to be involved in and, and just hone in on those. So I went there, found a few things for various people and started importing stuff and started a, a small importing business. And the main reason for that was the, these business people could not, justify buying a container load of product A or product B. And they asked me if I somehow could deal with just buying 10 cartons of that product. And so I rented a little place in Guangzhou. It was basically the size of two 20-foot containers. And um, I would just buy in the three boxes of this and the 10 boxes of that for various customers. And once I had enough gear, I would do a, a collation and bring it all into Australia in one 20-foot and distribute it out of Brisbane from there. And that worked quite well for a few years, but it also got me involved in going to China and, and made contacts for me in China. And uh, that's sort of where I, you know, gained a bit of interest in, in the manufacturing side because some people had asked me to get various bits and pieces manufactured for them, uh, you know, more so at a grassroots level, which you know, it, it, that sort of combined a lot of things that I had already learned, my electronics experience, my, my manufacturing experience, and that sort of brought all those things together. So there you go. So that got put into the door of China. And a look at the manufacturing. Why the move? Well, I looked at, at where we were going. We were doing fairly well with the boards. It was getting to be something that was sort of outgrowing the hobby stage. So by this stage, the boards are starting to be sent overseas as well as just local oh, Australian. Yes, I was, I was selling everywhere and I didn't have any agents at that time. I sold directly and uh, that was probably 50% of my problem because um, sadly I accepted paypal and there's a lot of uh, unscrupulous people out there who will take advantage of paypal's willingness to reverse a transaction at a moment's notice and i had about three or four uh, situations in a row where um where someone would buy a well to me an expensive board they'd buy a board that was 150 dollars, and then you know another 30 dollars shipping and then they'd say oh, we never got it like two days after i'd shipped it and uh the transaction would be reversed. There was nothing I could do about it. I could show them all the proof in the world. I could show them you know, receipts. I could show them shipping documents. I could show them Australia Post receipts. Didn't make any difference. It's a lot better these days than it was. In those early days with PayPal, they really got away with murder. I don't tolerate that anymore. I take PayPal again now, but the very microsecond there's an issue of a problem, I simply go to the banking ombudsman and they fix the problem overnight. And uh, you'd, My advice to people, if you have a problem with PayPal, do not hesitate. Fire off an email to them. Tell them, fix this problem. You've got 24 hours to fix it. Here's all my proof. You've got 24 hours. Don't, don't listen to what PayPal rules are. That's not relevant. 
And uh, this probably, this information probably only applies to Australians. After 24 hours, just online file an ombudsman's complaint and it will get resolved in your favour 99% of the time and very swiftly. Uh, yeah. Because the second PayPal sees there's an ombudsman's complaint, they just cave. It's not worth their while fighting it. They just give you the money. Now, whether they actually charge the actual customer again, I don't know, nor do I particularly care. But PayPal needs to be taught a lesson that this, this is not an acceptable way to do business. And that was, the, that was the beginning of my foray into not wanting to deal with overseas customers. And that caught, that caught me a lot of flack a few years later when I started building pinball machines. And of course, there were several... Uh, I won't name the, the nation, but people can probably guess there were several um, troublemakers, if you like, who who were after their 15 minutes of fame and uh, they couldn't help themselves but dredge up things that had happened, you know, many, ah. many years in the past. And, uh, you know... A, oh, little, a, little, a little sprinkling of the controversy yet to come. Oh, That's... So they, they dragged these, oh, oh, you know, you won't sell to XYZ country. I said, well, no, it's not that. It's just that I had four four chargebacks in a row from XYZ country. And so I've chosen to not send them there anymore because I simply can't trust the buyers there. Sorry, I can't afford to do that every second sale. And uh, so I, uh, that's, that's basically where I copped the initial flack. Because I'd also gained now a couple of years' experience talking to various small factories, mostly, you know, mum and dad sort of factories in China, not big places, because I was only buying a dozen of this and a, uh, a dozen cartons of that small quantities. So I had nutted out the smaller places and uh, I felt comfortable dealing with them because they were and, and to a degree still are quite good people to deal with. And um, so I was basically buying and trading for people, being their agent, if you like, in, in China and uh, finding sources for stuff for them. And I figured, look, you know, uh, when I was looking at pinball, it seemed to be growing in popularity at that point. And more and more people were more and more I don't know what, what's the term you would use, just just ordinary lay people were buying pinball machines to have at home, which was kind of an unheard of thing. It was a little bit unusual, really. So many more and more were buying them. And I thought, well, there might be an opportunity here. So I started investigating the possibility of a license because I figured that a licensed machine was going to sell better than an unlicensed machine. Uh, I looked around at what was available to us and the issue that many, many people have no clue about licensing and I don't expect them to have a clue about it, but they, they're quick to comment sometimes, but they really don't understand the background of licensing. And um, I approached a couple of places about licenses. Not, I wanted something to license that wasn't particularly in people's face. Uh, I didn't want the Avengers or Superman or something that, that was obviously, you know, pretty high-end sort of stuff. I wanted something a little low-key. And based on my experiences selling to XYZ country, I wanted something that did not necessarily appeal to that country because I didn't particularly want to sell to that country because I, I figured in advance what problems I would have and I was 100% right. In the end, um, a few companies knocked me back because I didn't have any manufacturing facility and they didn't see how I could possibly build said machines. So it's not so easy to get a license. But in the end, uh, ITV in London accepted my proposal for Thunderbirds. I was able to convince them that I indeed was able to set up a manufacturing facility and build them. And then I convinced some people in Australia. I, look, I like Thunderbirds as a theme because as a kid, I grew up with Thunderbirds. Um, yep. I'm sure you did as well. Yeah. We Saturday knew. mornings, baby, Lady yeah. Penelope. I, I think it's I think it's still on on Saturday mornings, actually. Yeah. But cool. It's um, it it was something that I felt was was well known enough, yet not 
in your face like all the current crop of stuff was and i thought this is this is a good license and you know uh, it will appeal to countries other than country xyz so i set about starting a factory and that was a long arduous process it was then i realized that there's lots of pinball stuff pinball parts and things that uh, i don't know how to explain this part of it i suppose it just I couldn't just purchase mechanism A, mechanism B, mechanism C and screw them together like some companies do these days uh, because getting stuff into China is near impossible. Uh, mm. You can export anything you like from China because they want your money, but getting stuff into China is near impossible. So I actually, in the end, started or uh, I organised a share office in Hong Kong and I would get many specialised parts that we simply couldn't get anywhere else. I had them... Uh, posted or shipped to my Hong Kong office where I would then physically take the package and walk across the border. It was just a nightmare trying to get some of the stuff. And people ask me, oh, why is your stuff metric? Well, that's pretty simple, really, because 99% of the world is metric. Get, get with the program. Uh, you know, it's time that, that some people woke up to themselves and realised that 964ths of something is a pretty stupid measurement. And... Um, so we decided very early on that myself and the couple of staff I had at that time to help me a drawing guy and so on. We decided this, it had to be metric. There was no other way for it. It just had to be okay. every engineering place we went to in China. We asked them about making something in seven sixteenths and they said, yeah, sure, we can do that, but it's double the price. Yeah. Everything was possible, but double the price uh, you know, in, in the quantities we're talking about, because remember w our initial quantities were like 200 machines. That was it. And th this brings with it another problem, especially in a country like China, where 200 is a sample. Uh, it's not a production. And we had no end of, of trouble getting smaller runs and still to this day have no end of problem getting smaller runs of stuff. And we pay heavily for that, for, for only having 100 or 500 made. And uh, it's, it's quite still a challenge, put it that way. Yeah, so we started uh, started the factory and uh, had many, many upheavals. Before Thunderbirds was actually finished, it was very close to finish, but before we actually got it ready to ship, my wife passed away. That created a whole new bunch of problems because, as any small business owner in Australia will tell you, their, their small business is usually in the family name or in their wife's name for for taxation reasons primarily, but also for protection reasons. If you get sued or something, then, hey, psh, I've got nothing. You know, shake me and see what falls out. And, uh, you know, that's that's pretty common, as you would agree. And that brought with it a problem that I had no money and I had a factory with 10-plus staff in China with monthly bills and pretty much no income apart from some board sales, certainly not enough to support the factory. I was, was very fortunate about that time that a couple of my, a very good family friend and a couple of my very good overseas customers, uh, when I told them of my plight, came to the party and said, look, we'll, we'll give you an advance order for these parts for the next three months and here's a big chunk of money. They stood by me and, um, and expected that I would pull through and provide them with the parts eventually, which of course I did. The same goes for Thunderbirds. I mean, it was stalled then for probably at least 18 months, probably two years. The whole project was stalled while I sorted out the mess and, uh, you know, arguing with insurance companies and initially having a dopey solicitor who didn't forward the right paperwork to the, to the insurance company and all this sort of stuff, just nightmare after nightmare. And trying to deal with that from China was, was an, another complication that, that made it more difficult. So, you know, we basically 
pulled through all that and started manufacturing and started finishing Thunderbirds. And of course, by then people were getting a bit antsy because it had been close nearly four years uh, from when some of them had actually yeah. given me money, three years for most, but some had, had jumped in pretty early and given me some, some deposits at least. I was, I'm was i pleased to say that at the end of the day, we, we've given every person who gave me the money their machine. They, they might've been late, but they got their machine. That's and, nice. Um, you know, uh, people can whinge at me for not supplying it in a timely fashion. I can't help that. Um, <laughs> you know, life, life gets in the way or death gets in the way, if you like. I might add too that uh, I was sort of, we we're just starting to get into the swing of production after getting over all the problems, and, or, well, the personal problems about my wife passing away. Um, one of the uh, engineers, one of our engineers in the factory passed away uh, in my apartment. Yeah. Um, in China, it's common for larger, well, not, not so much larger, but, but small to medium factories to provide accommodation in an accommodation block, either, either next to the factory or close to the factory. And uh, I had five or six apartments that were adjacent to the factory. And um, the problem was this guy had the weekend off and came back on the Sunday night, I think, and didn't show up for work on Monday because he passed away in his room on the Sunday night. But the problem for me was he actually passed away in my room. Uh, it would have been a whole different set of circumstances if he passed away at home where he was visiting at home. It wouldn't have had much to do with me. But uh, yeah, anyway, long, long story short is uh, it created another wave of problems and expenses that I didn't want or need. And, um, obviously, you know, commiserations to his family. It created probably plenty of problems for them as well. So <laughs> it's interesting just to further on that little point. The the yeah. um, cops came because the wife complained that I had worked this guy to death. And, <laughs> um, and the funny part was the cops turned up to interview people and they took three of my key staff away, my, my English-speaking secretary and two of my engineers away to the police station and grilled them for a couple of hours and they came back at lunchtime and we sort of, yeah, what happened, what happened, what happened? And uh, they said, oh, well, they, they asked if you were an ogre foreign boss and did you, you know, work us to death? Do you work us unreasonable hours? And we said, no, no, he's the best boss we've ever had. And uh, the cops were sort of, oh, okay, fair enough, off you go then. And they dismissed that line of, they dismissed that line of, um, of inquiry totally after that. Staff come back. You're not an ogre. You get to make the game. Thunderbirds are go. Um, and it's infamous in the world in its condemnation sure. as the worst game ever made. How much sleep do you lose because of that? I've got to admit, initially, I was a bit worried because, uh, you know, this had, we'd just released it to the market and uh, I didn't quite know what to expect, to be honest. I think there's a lot of negativity from people who, again, I say it again, they want their 15 minutes of fame. They want to jump on the bandwagon and, oh, yeah, get the pitchforks out. This guy said that country XYZ was a crap country five years ago, so let's burn him, burn him. You know, there's a lot of people who say stuff without any knowledge of what they're saying and any knowledge of what the product even is. There's people that have commented that have never even cited a Thunderbirds pinball machine, let alone played it. They've never even seen one, yet they're suddenly experts and can comment whether favourably or negatively, but obviously majority negatively. And uh, so I, I, I quickly learned that to dismiss 95% of what was said 
okay. and, and I would only listen to people who said, yes, I have actually played the machine. It came home to me quite clearly when one supposed expert commenter said, oh, I played uh, one ball and walked away and, uh, and left it sitting there. No, he didn't because Thunderbirds plays the game out deliberately. With my pinball background, I knew that that was a possibility that a kid would come up, play one ball, walk away. The game plays itself out. If you walk away, it will continue to load the balls. It gives you 20 seconds. It loads the ball, plays the ball out, loses the ball, last ball, game over. So for someone to say they left the ball there and oh, I came back 15 minutes later and it was still just sitting there. No, that's Sorry, it doesn't work that way. The game never worked that way, and that's not a possibility, which told me immediately the guy was just a liar. Now, I will say I have played the game. Right. If I'm comparing it to every other game... Should I listen to what the rest of you are going to say, or should I hide my ears now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the world's expert, Mike. You know that. Now, honestly, in all honest opinion, it's ranked lowly mainly right. because the rules don't follow the convention of right. a pinball machine that can be used in a tournament. Right, sure. Now, I remember you came out very early and said you were not making a game that will be used in a tournament. You wanted Correct. to make a game that people I'm could not... have a bit of fun on. Okay, but... yeah. yeah. I'd like and to I... clarify what you just said, basically, and that I'm, I approach pinball more from a technician's or a technical side rather than a player's side. I'm not a pinball player. I love playing pinball. I love bashing the ball around and having fun. But the thing that I abhor the most is a competition. I cannot stand a competition where 10 people are fighting one another. Now, I know that that is your bag and I know that's your daughter's bag as well and, and, and very successful at it too. And uh, congratulations to her. But it's not my bag. I approach pinball from a technical perspective and that's why I have been pretty harsh in some of my comments about other manufacturers even before we released Thunderbirds because... One thing I totally disagree with is building any machine, not a pinball machine, any machine and basing that product on a $100 computer motherboard, that is complete madness, complete and utter madness. Anyone who has got any one ounce of technical ability will agree with me in that computer mainboard is made for a two to three year life. You tell me anyone you know that's got a computer at home that's, lot, that's older than five, ten years if they're super, super lucky. If you're spending 10000 bucks on a machine, any machine, you expect it to last longer than that. And uh, it's just complete madness and laziness to design a machine. And I know full well why they do it. It's, it's, it's very simple why they do it because it's an easy job to just plug a monitor into the, into the card and suddenly you've got a screen. That's easy. The way we do it is way more difficult to do that. To drive a monitor is quite difficult unless you've got a PC. And it's, this is why there were companies springing up all over the place just using a computer motherboard. And I completely have always disagreed with that and to this day disagree with that. And I will never do that. If I have to build a machine based on a computer motherboard, that's the last day I'll be involved because I won't do it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> I, approach pinball, I approach pinball from a technical, technical angle, not from a player's perspective. And that's why I said right from the start, our machines aren't designed for competition. They're, that's not what they're for. They're designed for you and I to bang the ball around, have a bit of fun, have a couple of beers and a laugh, and that's it. Not not for competition. Oh, I beat you. I got 10 points more than you. Whoop-de-doo. That's just not my bag. Yep, that's fair. And you're entitled to have that bag. Tell me <laughs> the story about the, uh, the rentals of Thunderbirds here in Australia. Well, there's a quite well-known um, company in Queensland that rents pinballs and other 
products for party hire, jukeboxes, whatever. And uh, he has owned a Thunderbirds for a long time now, more than a year, 18 months, something like that. And he told me recently that that machine is out every single weekend at $500 a weekend. And when he goes to pick it up, the customers are overjoyed with it. They love it. And he's so happy with it. He's bought a second one recently. So he's got two to put out on the weekend. So I guess he's making a grand a week out of the machine, which is a hell of a lot more than I ever made. That sounds very much like the old days. <laughs> well, the point is, the point is, the people that are renting the machine and playing the machine want Thunderbirds. They don't necessarily they want a pinball, sure, but they know what Thunderbirds is, and the bonus is it's a Thunderbirds pinball. Fantastic, send it down, yeah. beauty. We want it, and uh, that's that's the difference. They're not they're not pinball enthusiasts, if you like, or avid collectors, or avid players who've got to score 100 points more than you. No, that's not my market. It never has been and it never will be. If that's if that's your bag, my machines aren't for you. I just want to see the pool open and the Thunderbirds come out from underneath. Well, you and I understand what that is and what it's representing, where many, many other people don't understand what that's representing. And no, also the ramp underneath Thunderbirds too. And... Uh, and the mole that the mole tilts and the nose rotates. We know what all that stuff is. Where people who bag Thunderbirds, majority of people have no clue what those things are or what they represent. And you know, it's a good kids show. It's a good clean kids show, which can't be said about some things these days. What like Team America? Surely wouldn't. <laughs> well, obviously, uh, which 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 it's quite funny. You know, when Thunderbirds first started to appear around the place, uh, some people from an overseas country would bag it. Oh, it's just a cheap copy of Team America. They didn't even know that Team America was actually a copy of Thunderbirds. It's ridiculous. And I had to laugh. I knew immediately that whatever their comment was going to be was, was meaningless. Yeah. Let's pick up the story, if you like. When, the, uh, when my head engineer, the guy who was doing our programming, passed away, my only English-speaking person, well, only you know, competent English-speaking person in the factory was heavily pregnant and uh, she had had enough of this and she threw her hands in the air and said, I'm out of here on maternity leave, bye. She didn't want to put up with the fallout from all of that. And uh, in China, maternity leave is extremely generous and off she went. And uh, I was sort of left in a bit of a bind and I phoned um, a friend that I'd met casually and asked if she could come over and help. And she's listening to this conversation now, so I do have to be a bit careful what I say. I asked her to come over and have a couple of days off work. She worked. She was the um, HR person at a very, very large bicycle parts factory, making high-end bicycle parts for mostly Italian firms, and uh, you know, like racing bicycles, fiber, carbon fiber parts and stuff, high-end stuff. And uh, so she had a couple of days off and came over and helped me. Started to help me sort the mess out and um, help me find an English-speaking solicitor to take on the job and uh, one thing led to another and we sorted all that mess out and I had to pay the family a substantial whack of money that I didn't have. We negotiated through all that and in the end Amanda came over and, and started working for me, helped me get Thunderbirds to market and worked in the factory for about a year I guess while we produced the ones that we did, stabilised things. So I just didn't, because of all the things that were going on, I never had the opportunity like I have this time round to get a second project in the pipeline because it takes, as most most people, even even players only would know, it takes a very long time to from concept to completion. Thunderbirds was a, it took a hell of a lot longer because basically I had to start from scratch, make every design and make every single part, start a factory from nothing, and and go from there. But this time round, we 
we're a little bit wiser and we've been able to secure another license moving forward that that we can work on while we're building this is spinal tap uh, but that's i'm sort of getting ahead of myself a bit there um amanda came to to work for me and help run the factory and um stabilize things a little bit and we got rid of a couple of staff and put on a few extras and things were going along quite swimmingly I like Chinese. I've got to say, the, the government changed a lot. The, the CCP changed. From when I first went to China, they welcomed me with open arms. Oh, a foreigner wants to open a factory here. Come on down. And you could go to any any department and uh, they would welcome you with open arms and help you out and find an English speaker and help you through the paperwork and give you the stamp piece of document at the end. No problem. It was never a problem. Like Chinese. Towards the last, you know, very small period of time, year eighteen months, things changed drastically. Suddenly, you were you were not wanted, and um, you know, we were getting two to three inspections every week by a different department. It was the fire department this week, or it was the electrical department next week. It was someone else, and they were handing out fines left, right, and centre. Fortunately, we avoided all of that nonsense, but we still had to wade through all of their inspections, and and it was just becoming too much. It was just too much. All these inspections. They were shutting down factories all over the place, and they basically wanted manufacturing gone from Shenzhen. They wanted Shenzhen to become an IT hub, and that was it. They wanted IT. They didn't want factories, dirty, smelly factories, of which ours was not one, of course. It was around that time we decided to open a second factory. We were very close to the border with Dongguan, so we opened a second factory in Dongguan so that we could actually cut the wood, build the cabinets, paint the cabinets in that second factory in Dongguan where the rules were a little bit more relaxed and then bring the cabinets over to the first factory and assemble them. Assembly was okay. They sort of left us alone when we were doing only assembly, but cutting wood and painting wood, no way. That was right out in Shenzhen. So we had two factories then, which of course doubled the problems. And um, we... uh, uh, somewhere around there, we, we were getting hammered with all these additional inspectors and having two factories to run, and it was becoming a little bit of a headache. And around that time, Amanda's brother suffered a stroke uh, in Taiwan. Amanda's actually Taiwanese, not Chinese. And uh, her brother had a stroke in Taiwan, and nobody knew what the outcome of that was going to be. And as a doctor, you would well be aware that it could be anywhere from no, uh, perfectly normal at the end to perfectly disabled at the end and uh, anywhere in between and everywhere in between. And so we had no clue what was going to happen and he's the breadwinner for the family here. And um, so it was also coming up to Chinese New Year. It was like, it was about Christmas time. So uh, Christmas is not celebrated in China, but Chinese New Year is a few months later. And it was it was about Christmas time when all this happened. And um, and we looked at things and the Chinese New Year this year was an extra week. For some reason, it was an exceptionally long one. Now, we at that stage had the most staff. We had nearly 20 staff, 19, I think we had something like that. And the factories have to pay their staff, not just the wages for that time, but it's like it's the it's the yearly break time. So you're paying thousands of dollars for every staff member. And that was just a hell of a strain which, you know, when I did the sums, it was going to it was going to break me, as well as paying the rental, which kept going up and up and up. And, you know, the, the, the landlords in China are very much, very much follow the boiled frog uh, method of a business approach. They let you in the door cheap and then they slowly boil you and to the point where you, you really want to move, but you can't because they've got three months advance money from you and it's going to cost you an absolute fortune to move. 
and you're stuck. They put the rent up, you just have to pay it. And uh, anyway, in the end, we uh, decided because of the family issues that we would move the factory because of the family issues and combined with the additional expense of Chinese New Year coming up and all the additional pressures from the government putting piling on the, the thing. I mean, things changed in China. I, I had been going to China for 10 years or more and things were good and it was a great place. It truly was. Uh, but under the new regime, things have changed very drastically and anyone who actually goes to China regularly or does business there will tell you the same thing, that uh, it's just not what it was. And, um, you know, Taiwan, whole different story. You know, Taiwan's like a breath of fresh air. It's... It, Taiwan is what China could be if it was a free country. It's just stunning. The world had better look out if China becomes a Taiwan because it's just a whole different ballgame. Amanda's just reminded me about some new onerous rules that were brought in that foreigners living in in, in China have to report report monthly to the local police station. Now, if you're living in a hotel, which most foreign visitors do, the hotel does that automatically for you. So they're not aware of all these onerous rules and regulations. They go to visit for a week, a month, whatever, and um, they're not aware of all this stuff. So every month we'd have to front up at the local police station, drive there, front up with the thing. Then they started knocking on our door. They started knocking on my apartment at 10 o'clock at night to see if I was there. And mm. you know, all this stuff got worse and worse and worse, which it never, it was never, ever like that in the beginning. And yeah, that made our mind up to get out of the place. It was obviously becoming more and more authoritarian and we needed to get out of there. But we, we moved to Taiwan. And like I said, the primary catalyst for that was was Amanda's brother suffering the episode. And I'm pleased to say he's come out of it with absolutely zero effects at the end of the day. He's 100% recovered and uh, back to normal. But but that was the catalyst for us moving. We closed up, virtually gave away all of our equipment. It just wasn't worth moving it here and had to start from scratch here, renting a new factory. And we were able to outsource a lot of stuff here, more so than we were able to do in China. We were able to outsource the cabinet work to a cabinet factory that specifically makes arcade machine cabinets, crane machines, uh, all that sort of stuff. So we had a few meetings with those people and they make our cabinets exactly the way we want them out of the materials that we want. So we, we were able to outsource a lot of stuff, which meant we could we could rent a smaller factory here because a lot of that stuff we didn't have to do any longer. We could just concentrate basically on assembly work here. And uh, so that's what we, we do now. But we had to set about getting new staff and that's no mean feat in a whole new country. <laughs> in the middle of COVID, which of course hit at about the same time. In fact, the wow. funny thing is that Amanda and I were on the last flight from Hong Kong to Kaohsiung, which is where we are in Taiwan at the bottom end of the country. Yes, we moved to Taiwan and started, uh, started fresh from here. Amanda and I got married in Taiwan. Uh, we're not legally married in Australia. Or I believe Australians recognise the Taiwanese document, but uh, we are legally married in Taiwan and that entitled me to a spousal visa. And so I'm uh, entitled to be here. And we started the factory and um, grew it over the past three years to where we are now, in fact, got a, ha- a handful of staff. We don't need as many as we had before. We could do with a couple of extras, but we're just holding off as long as we can till we can actually start getting more okay. machines out the door. We got a new license. When we moved here, actually, the, the funny part was when we moved here, we were approached by Porsche to uh, build some machines for their promotions. And so we designed and built some machines for Porsche. And uh, many people poo-pooed that idea because, oh, how could, how could Porsche choose Homepin of all companies? You know, and there were, there were also some naysayers as well when, uh, when we 
when we got Spinal Tap license, some people were saying, oh, haven't these people done their homework? How can they give this license to Homepin? Oh, my God, uh, the sky is falling. Well, some of these people have no concept about how licensing works. You know, licensing owners have got a brain for a start. They don't look at or listen to what gossip is on on pinball sites. They're not the slightest bit interested in the gossip or the rubbish that's that's promoted on most of these sites. And to, to be frank, lately I'm not either because 90% of it's just complete rubbish. You get one person who will say something and then they all pile it on because they all want to join the club. You know, it's just, it's just rubbish. And sadly promoted by mostly by people who have really no clue. You know, they don't understand pinball, electronics or anything else, which uh, I believe I do. And uh, that's that's what I bring to the party. And, uh, you know, going back a few steps, that's probably why I started a pinball factory, because I believed that I brought together several different things that I was good at. And that's electronics, that's pinballs, which I'd been involved in, that's trading in China. So I brought together those, those things that I was pretty familiar with in, in separate areas and brought them together into one one place and decided to make pinball. You asked earlier how why, what made me do that, and that's why, because I brought those things together. That's how Thunderbirds came to be. One, you know, I mean, moving on from that, here we are now, we're at present day, we're making, and my staff are out there now assembling, this is Spinal Tap Playfields, and we've got a container load of um, cabinets and back boxes all ready to go there, ready, waiting for the playfields to be inserted and shipped off to Europe with full compliance, with full European compliance, CE compliance and the documents to prove it. Legal, 100%, 36-page document. How many how many um, spinal tests have been shipped so far? Uh, only sample machines around the world so far. We've sent um, two, I think, two or three, I forget which, two or three to Australia, one to Canada, one's in the Pinball Hall of Fame in Las Vegas, sitting next to Thunderbirds. He's got one of each of our machines there. Uh, just further on the on the Porsche, I've actually been. I get emails still today about people wanting to buy a Porsche, but uh, that was a special order. We built five, I think, for Porsche, and that was a uh, custom job for them. They're not available for commercial sale. I probably should inquire about a license because lots of people seem to be interested in that. Um, mm. But um, Put it in the garage next to their car, indeed. Yes, that's it. Yes, yeah. the wealthy ones. Yes, well, doctors yeah. like yourself, perhaps. Yes. Ha! Don't you believe I'm it? Sure. So, Spinal Tap, have, have you got any feedback from the band members yet? This, I understand there are custom call-outs. This is Spinal Tap Pinball is the full correct name. TAP is our designation, and that's what's that's what's stamped on the on the serial number plate, TAP. TAP, as opposed yeah. to TAG. That's a, well, that's what the band calls themselves, so we ran with that. And there are custom call-outs in the game? Yes, there are by the four key players of the band. The manager and the three band members uh, all did call-outs for us. And uh, specific to pinball, yes. The, so the thing that attracted me to Spinal Tap was the that I wasn't over over fussy about it when I was younger. Uh, I no. didn't see it and I thought it was funny, and that was the end of it. You know, move on like like we do. Uh, but when I watched it again more recently, like a couple of years ago, when I was looking at gaining the license, I thought, well, actually, the jokes in here have stood the test of time. They're still funny today, majority of, and and you know, it's still got humour in it, which applies today and it works today, which is great. And that's why I thought this is this is a good theme. It's a sleeper. Um, it's something that the big boys probably won't touch because it's not mainstream enough. And mm -hmm. I thought this is the one for us. It's perfect. And, uh, and as it happened to get that license, I was extremely lucky. I'd been lucky. I'd been chasing it for quite some time. And the boys, I say the boys, the band members had only just got the license back. They their license was actually uh, controlled by a French company that I'd been negotiating with. 
And the French company for nearly a year kept trying to turn me off taking this license on. I could never work out why. They kept pushing me onto other things. And I thought, well, no, I'd rather I want to stick this out. I think this is a winner. And I didn't know why, but in the background, there was all sorts of court action going on and uh, and the band members were suing them for not getting their, their royalties. And in the end, they, they settled by taking back the licence fees. It, it turned out that their commission <laughs> between the four of them their commission for 10 years of royalties for Spinal Tap, once this French company calculated it all, they sent them a cheque for 84 US dollars <laughs> for 10 each, years royalty. Each, each, I hope. <laughs> no, jointly. And, uh, of course, that was that was the catalyst for action to sue, them, sue the company for millions of dollars because that was obviously just stupid. And yeah. um, I believe they then settled, settled and the, the boys got their licence, their, their IP yeah. back. And I was just Johnny, Johnny on the right spot at the right time because they'd only just got their license back, and you know, not microseconds later, but certainly months, just months after they got that, I was on the doorstep looking to license it. And uh, and at the time, their their agent was a Kiwi lady living in in London, and she and I had a Zoom call and uh, got on very well. And I explained to her what we did and what we wished to do, and she was very pleased about that. And the direction was good, and here we are. I haven't had any feedback from the boys directly yet because they don't have their machines yet. Part of our agreement is that they get a machine. And uh, because we haven't yet shipped fully finished final machines, the ones that have shipped to this to date have only been um, sample or test machines, which is what people see out there playing. And, and it, it, feedback again, uh, there's, there's a pinball enthusiast uh, in Australia who uh, played the machine at, um, played one of the sample machines. We had two sample machines at Pinfest last year in Newcastle, Australia, and he played the machine there and walked away from it after the second ball because blah, blah, whatever, whatever his reason. And there was a, a comment sent to me by, by a follower where very recently he's commented online saying that uh, about our flippers, there's some issue with our flippers, which I've never noticed, to be honest, but, uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. You'd think, you'd think Homepin would have fixed that by now after 18 months. And, I mean... The point being that there's no finished machines out there with with upgraded flippers, only the original sample ones. What have I had an opportunity to fix? Uh, yeah. You know, sorry, yes, I have had an opportunity to look at that problem, and indeed, I believe I've cured their complaint, which was not weak flippers because we use a coil that is exactly the same as a Williams coil, absolutely identical winds, size, the whole bit. You can put a Williams coil in and it performs exactly the same way, or you can put our machine in Williams machines, which I have done, and. You can't tell the difference. But it was, in fact, just a little sideline technical note here, it was, in fact, the stroke. We are engineering our... Engineering of our flippers is very much a Williams flipper assembly, but the plunger and link assembly was slightly different. And we've since modified that. And all machines that leave here, apart from the sample machines that are still out there in the wild, but I will update them with new parts. Whether those owners choose to put the new parts in or not is their business. But... Uh, Machines leaving here will have our updated flipper link assembly in there, and uh, I believe that cures people's some people's comments about oh you can't make the ramp you can't make the ramp I'm I'm at a complete loss. They say that about Thunderbirds as well. You've played Thunderbirds. I don't believe there's any issue making the ramps in Thunderbirds. It's quite easy. Uh, I don't know what they're they're on drugs or something. These people, I'm sure. You know, <laughs> I just. Uh... I just don't like making it seventeen times to spell international rescue. Oh, sure. That's hey, that's that's a funny <laughs> that's a funny thing. You know, that was a last minute thing that we added because we had put lights in the 
back panel at the back of the playfield, we'd put a light behind it and it said it spelled out International Rescue on there and I'm unsure why that came about, but that was put in there very, very early in the piece. And um, the lamps were there, the boards were already made and screwed into the machines and this was minutes before we were shipping the machine out. What are we going to do about this International? Oh, I have no idea. And the programmer just said, look, I'll just make it so that it advances every time you go up the ramp. The ramp's an easy shot. I'll just make it so that it advances when you go up the ramp. Oh, yeah, right, that'll do. Let's do that. And so it was very much a last-minute thing that was thrown in the programming. You know, it was either that or it, would, or it would do nothing. And I guess we'd attract the same sort of flack if it did nothing. Oh, these lights are here and they don't do anything. Uh, so, yeah, I'm fully aware that that's pretty silly. Uh, that's just what happened. It's just the nature of the beast, you know. But for that to overshadow what people think about the rest of the machine is pretty pathetic, I think. They, they didn't watch Thunderbird as children. They don't know the That's experience. True. Well, the problem I is... a lot of it down to that. <laughs> as I said, our game was never, ever intended for the country that cans it the most. It was never, yeah. ever intended to go to that country uh, because I knew full well that Thunderbirds was not very popular there. It was shown, and many people have sent me emails saying it was shown here. I saw it as a kid. I loved it as a kid. Those people have got a whole different opinion of the machine. And, uh, you know, that's that's where the difference comes in. And again, like I said, we never set out to make a record-breaking machine, a medieval madness killer. That was never our goal. And I stated it clearly every time I gave it a lecture or talk. I think you were at one of my very early talks in Brisbane. And uh, I, I would have made that exceptionally clear at the time. We're not at setting out. We're setting out to make a pinball machine, not a medieval madness killer. That is not our goal. We understand it's our first machine. We're just not going to be able to do that. And um, that's, uh, yeah, that's where we sat with it. And that's what we did. We've refined a lot of stuff. We've got better. You know, there's a lot of improvements. We've kept similar systems with our, with our spinal tap. And um, we've learned a hell of a lot over the years, of course. And um, Are you marketing spinal tap to the country that shall not be named? <laughs> um, well, let's just say the first three containers of machines are not going to that country. Uh, so uh, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? And uh, sadly, because it is popular there and it's big there, and people have uh, have got dibs on a machine that's going there. I believe there are some that have been earmarked from a different country that will be sent there, and I've, I'm contractually obligated to supply for to that country. So uh, I will obviously have to arrange that, but only after the first three containers are out, and, and we're on the cusp of shipping those. I mean, the boys are putting two player fields a day together here, so. We're one or two months away from shipping the first container out, which is going to Europe. Playfields, any trouble with clear coat? None, zero. We don't have clear coat. Oh, oh, oh. Are you uh, sandwiched? Yeah, the same as Haggis. Haggis copied us, basically. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Haggy. Um, they, you know, we um, looked at all different options. Making a playfield in the traditional way wasn't really an option for us in China when we would, when we were building Thunderbirds. So we looked at alternate ways of doing it. And the way we do it, I believe, has stood the test of time. We've had no problems at all. We've had one minor issue with one machine. And how that happened, who knows? I, I believe it's because the machine sat in the direct sunlight every single day for two years of its life. And I think that caused this minor issue, which did not stop the machine from being played. Um, yeah. but did cause a kerfuffle with someone, Mr. Mr. Super Fussy, who won't be named. Uh, that, that, that machine, by the way, has become the second rental machine for our rental person uh -huh. who, who absolutely loves it. And he was overjoyed to buy it at a good price and earn 500 bucks a week from it. So, uh, the right. slightest bit peeved by it. 
code updates on Spinal Tap. I know originally with Thunderbirds, there wasn't a USB code updatable feature. No. Anything on Thunderbirds? No. Yes, it comes with a programming cable stapled inside the back box and uh, downloadable from our website is a tiny little DOS type program and you plug the USB, provided USB cable into your laptop and update the program, yes. Ah, that way. Okay. Okay. It, has to be USB. Done, it can't be done from a USB stick. I spent an unbelievable amount of money uh, and time on experts, in inverted commas, trying to get USB to work. None of them in the end of the day could make it work, not satisfactorily anyway. And so I, in fact, at the end of the day, found a Pommy living in Taipei who came and spent a few days in the factory here. And he also couldn't get it sorted out while he was here. However, he went back and armed with the new information he'd gleaned by working in the factory and a couple of test boards that I gave him to take back with him cracked the concept and uh, I'm pleased to say uh, that he was able to uh, get that all sorted out and working and he's written the little piece of code that makes it happen and it's wow. a piece of cake really. At the end of the day it turned out to be so simple it wasn't funny and it is something that at the end of the day we could have implemented on, on Thunderbirds had we known about it but uh, it shows that there's experts in every field and uh, you know I say it in inverted commas I've paid a lot of them and got nowhere by doing so. This guy, this guy was the cheapest one of all and he worked for a hamburger and a can of Coke and, uh, and, and here we are, you know. And I'm pleased to say, I'm ple his, his forte, is his, his main business is writing um, game code for uh, online gaming and okay. he, he does an exceptional amount of work in that area and he does also licensed work for Nintendo and companies like that. So he's quite a smart cookie. And... Um, so he helped with the DOS upgrading of the game. Did he also help with the programming of the rules? No, not at all. No. Okay. No. No. That's we, that was that was done in Brisbane, the same as Thunderbirds. Same person? Uh, kind of the same team. Yes, there's a couple of people, but yes, pretty much the same, give or take. All right. Uh, so I haven't played it yet. I'm looking forward to playing it in Newcastle when right. I go down for Pinfest. Right. Uh, a little more depth in code. A little more is it much again? Again, wrong. Well, our same philosophy applies. We're not trying to make a medieval madness killer. We're making a Spinal Tap pinball. And if you're a Spinal Tap fan, you will look at the machine and you will understand the features of the machine where the ball is elevated up inside the pod and is trapped in the pod. Uh, and you have to make a small sandwich to get him in the pod. And you have to, use, you have to hit the prize and the blowtorch and the hammer targets to release him from the pod. And, you know, it's all Spinal Tap related and, and mixed in with the theme as much as we're able to do. And at various points, and I've copped a bit of feedback on this from people who've seen it, and we have adjusted things slightly, but there's a full-size 27-inch monitor in this machine which plays very short clips from the movies, often two or three seconds of clip, very little. That's not for the player so much as the bystander to watch. And at various points in the game, a film part of the film is shown that relates to the part of the game you're playing like if you're trapped in the pod it shows you being trapped in the pod if you hit the prize target it shows the the roadie trying to prize the pod apart it's and so on and um you know we, we've tried to merge the video with the play it's not just showing the it's not just showing the movie it's showing very very short excerpts from the movie that relate to exactly where you are in gameplay and 
they didn't tie up precisely because pinball's a fast game, like it or not. And, mm-hmm. and you, know, you can't expect a video clip to show what happened to the ball two seconds ago. And uh, it's meshed as well, as well as we can mesh it, put it that way. Plans for more titles coming up, I assume. Yeah, well, once we opened in, in Taiwan and before we had staff, we had lots of time to set the factory up and, and set up our parts bins and, and work on projects and, and build the Porsche, which I personally made uh, those machines because we had no one else to do that. So um, I did those and that gave us time to work on licenses such as Spinal Tap. And the minute... The minute we, I'd finished developing Spinal Tap, uh, you know, we got into actual production, even though we're still fine-tuning many parts on it. Obviously, they're <clears throat> making the first batch of playfields and I'm still making final tweaks and adjustments to the, the positioning of things, which is just what happens to make it, mostly to make it quicker and easier to assemble because assembling a play, pinball playfield, as anyone who has done a playfield swap will know, is a, f- a very, very big job. It's, you know a job that you would not or should not undertake lightly, certainly without a bit of experience in, in pinball particularly. And um, you're smiling and nodding. I, I assume you've done a playfield swap and, uh, yeah. I've done four and I've got a World Cup soccer playfield sitting over there all beautifully clear-coated waiting for you to take it on. Not so you know that it it's, it's not a job you take on lightly. And, no. um, and once you've got it together, even though it was working perfectly before, you can be guaranteed there'll be 20 problems. And yeah. adjustments and tweaks and targets that don't work anymore for some unknown reason, and lamps that have been put back in the wrong place. And you can imagine designing that thing from scratch, designing the wiring harnesses for that, designing the, every printed circuit board, every mechanism, and then the layout, and then screwing it all together. That's a bit of a headache when it comes to yeah. finding from new. So we're still in that phase at the moment. And um, you're using uh, your own operating system. You're not fast or P3 no, or anything. No, 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 no PCs. No, no PCs in our machines. Sorry, no uh, PC motherboards. Go away. That's uh, <laughs> that's, that's a dead end losers game. I'm sorry. Yep, yep. All right. So it's all at home. In. Ask any person who has a ten year old machine that runs a mainboard how they got on changing the mainboard, and you will hear the horror stories. And I get them. I get the horror stories emailed to me every day and the, all the heroes and the experts online don't mention very much about this at all, but I get the people at the end of their tether tearing their hair out with their $10,000 plus machine that's now a paperweight and they can't get it fixed. And they take oh. it to the pinball machine repairman and he says, that's a PC, I'm not interested. They take it to the PC computer guy and he says, that's a pinball machine, I'm not interested. They can't find any help. Well, they turn their machine on one day and it comes up with a BIOS screen that says press yeah. F1 and they go, what's that mean? I have yes. no idea. Oh, where's F1? I don't know. And that's the end of it. That's the beginning of their nightmare story. And that will yeah. never happen with one of our machines. Never. No. The same as it doesn't happen with an SS Bally or a, or yeah. any, any pinball machine that's built from that era, whether it be Data East. Gottlieb, anything. They don't run computer mainboards, mainly because they didn't yeah. exist at that time, of course, but uh, um, because that just that's just not the way you do it, I'm sorry. In my opinion, that's only my opinion. What's your favourite Aussie movie? Now, everyone loves Mad Max, no. The Castle. No. Oh, the Castle is what I, the castle is what I would yeah. say, yes. Absolutely. It's, oh. it's got humour. It's got, well, more, more specifically, it's got, it's got specific Australian humour, like, yeah. like the power lines. You know, look at the Look at the serenity, the power lines. And there's nothing Dad likes more than serenity and the sound of a two-stroke at full throttle. Oh, smell that. 
two-stroke. Yep. Dale, I reckon we're the luckiest family in the world. Yeah. He loved the serenity of the place. How's the serenity? I think he also just loved the word. So much serenity. <laughs> yeah. How can you not? How can you not love that? My favourite, my favourite line from the movie is that Dad loves. Look at the serenity, and there's nothing Dad loves more than serenity and the sound of a two-stroke at full throttle. Oh, I'll play that quote. It's just, it's just so many lines in that movie. Oh, great! Oh, well, the God. same with Final Tap. It's, it's, it's a similar vein, in fact, and uh, you know, it, its humour is interesting because its humour is mostly English humour. They're pretending to be an English band, of course, and none of them are. Um, they're all Americans, uh, but they do play English parts very, very well. And the jokes are sort of, they lean a bit towards pommy jokes. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. why they stood the test of time, I don't know. I don't know, but it, and it's odd because Americans don't understand a lot of British humour. No, they don't. No, no. It's they, interesting that the Americans adopted the British humour for the movie. Yeah, they did, and it's interesting that the movie was a was a cult hit success, and, and I don't know whether that happened at the time or whether it sort of grew to become a cult. Yeah, I think it was afterwards. I think it was. I think it sort of it yeah. slowly gained acceptance, and I think that's where it happened. And your favourite holiday spot? In Australia, and I'm thinking that may have cassowaries in it. Yeah, well, it What's has, to be, it has to be cans, obviously, doesn't it? No, I wouldn't agree. I'd say Daintree. Maybe. Sort of the same thing, really. Ah, oh, come on. Daintree yeah. so let's cool. Let's say anywhere on the, on the Barrier Reef would be okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> Tell us, as an ex-repairman, yep. the worst uh, hacks you've done or you've seen done and what people should do to maintain their home game. Well, I mean, I will admit to hacks as in mostly uh, GI stuff, twisting wires together. Um, our, our job as a paid technician on the road in those days, back in the day, was don't leave the site unless the machine's working. Um, you know, basically, don't come back. If you come back, leave your keys at the door. And, um, you know, we had to do whatever we had to do. We had to twitch fencing wire we had to do whatever we had to do to as long as the machine kept going that was the number one name of the game because the minute it was out of order it wasn't taking 20 cent pieces and um, that's how much a game was in those days 20 cents and, uh, so yeah we would do all sorts of stuff I, I've put um, I've put pop bumper coils in for flipper coils I've done all sorts of stuff like that and, uh, yeah you knew it wasn't going to last because if someone held the flipper button down well it was going to be toast and remember, these machines were in, in places like, like snack bars and, and bowling alleys where they would pretty much work non-stop. There was nothing else to do. There was no mobile phones. There was, there was none of that stuff. And so pinball is what people played. And then, of course, Space Invaders, etc. after that. But we, uh, I put that coil in and came back the next day with a, with a new flipper coil and it was still working perfectly well. Amazing. It's amazing what you can actually get away with if you have to. Uh, yeah. uh, that was probably the biggest bodge that I remember. Have you seen any repairs that you've had to then fix that other people have bodged up? Oh, millions, of course. I think everybody who's fixed a pinball machine has. And, of course, alluding back to my first comment, the GI wiring is the most common one because it's the one that draws the most current with a million little 44 lamps all over the place sucking 100 mils each. Yeah, it suddenly adds up to a lot of amps. And um, so the connectors that were never really designed to take that load in the first place 
just fry and melt. Yeah. And, um, you know, it goes from there. So people do all sorts of nasty things like soldering the wires directly on the back of the circuit boards and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, yeah I think we've all seen that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. The usual, the usual uh, cigarette paper or alfoil on the, on the fuses. That's a common one, of course, still is today. I've actually done that myself. I've had to do that myself because I didn't have anything, any fuse to put in. Again, though, with the proviso that, hey, I am coming back here tomorrow anyway, I'll bring fuses. And, and, a, fire, and a fire extinguisher. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Well, you know, we were pretty lucky with the stuff we did in those days because, you know, like I said, when I first started work on these at these places, they were all pretty much all EMs. That's all the, the company owned. And uh, I was sent out to do EM repairs as well, and I didn't have a clue about that. And I could just look for the obvious and fix the obvious. But... EMs were the biggest potential fire makers, you know, drawing heaps of current through lots of millions of relays and clickety-clack, clickety-clack. It's remarkable those machines didn't cause more problems and, and even deaths because the wiring on them was atrocious. And, and, uh, <laughs> you know, look, some models with a, a piece of fish paper separating you from the, oh, yeah. from the button on the front door, separating you from the, from the mains. I mean, that's just madness. You know, you'd never you'd never contemplate that these days. Although there's some manufacturers out there that probably wouldn't know better, but uh, you wouldn't contemplate doing anything like that. And the Americans never seem to want to put a ground in there. That's crazy, uh, madness. Again, there's no chance that a machine these days would pass CE testing without proper proper ground, not just on the cabinet, but on any metal part. It has to be grounded, or it just won't pass. So, uh, if you've got a machine that does not have grounded metal parts. I can guarantee you with 100% certainty it has not passed a, CE, a, a modern CE no. test. It just hasn't. The number of times I've been places and lent from one yes. side rail to another side rail. And the way it was built, yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, very common. It's a good tingle. That, that tingle and the tingle you get from the old DMDs with the bent over pins, yep. with all those pins at what was it, about 170 volts? Yes. All exposed. And you just rest your arm on there as you're doing something on the. Gives you a nice little sizzle. Yeah. Nice little sizzle. <laughs> Thank God well, for modern LEDs. Yeah, LEDs have saved, the, saved our bacon there in a lot of cases. <laughs> That's good. So, spinal taps heading out the door. Is there a limit on the numbers? No limit, uh, but there's a limit on the time frame, the same as with Thunderbirds, which is why. I mean, I, I still get monthly emails from people wanting to buy Thunderbirds. And yep. uh, we basically, the license expired pretty much the same time that we moved to Taiwan. And right. um, so, yeah, that was sort of a, a cutoff point. So, how long have people got to order? Uh, Spinal Tap before the license runs out. Oh, we'll, we'll be making them for a year. Yeah, there's no emergency. Um, but, I mean, People keep asking for them. I, I would think if you if you genuinely want one and you don't just want to kick tires, go and talk to one of our distributors about it. Give them five hundred bucks to secure your machine, and um, that will most likely cement the price as well. Because who knows what the prices are going to do? They're all over the place. We're paying a lot more for parts here than we ever did in China. Uh, we've found oh. mostly new suppliers here in Taiwan. I've got to say that the the quality in China was fine. I was very happy because we were mostly dealing with mum and dad businesses and I kept a close eye on them and they, they were very good to us. And we still deal with a couple of those mum and dad businesses for small things. But here it's not practical to ship bigger things over. So we have to deal with local companies and they're on, on the, in the main far more professional. What you're going to get is far more reliable if you get my drift. They have a different business ethic here. It's, uh, it's more aligned with our values. There's a lot of... Chinese 
business people don't have the same moral ethics that we do. They'll sell you a product and don't expect to ever see you back again. Whole different ball game here. It's a it's a different place. Here is like doing business in Australia, basically. So your websites that I'm looking at, people can have a look at things on there. Homepin.com. On the front page, you can see our our selling. Yeah, there's we've got two tiers of distributors. We've got two completely separate sets of distributors. The ones on the main page, front page of that site, homepin.com, show our our agents for our finished machines primarily, right. not necessarily our other products like our our PC boards and our transformers and so on. Um, but there's a separate page under the parts section which shows our resellers of parts. Now, some of those are the same people, some are not. Um, oh. For example, Pinball Life in America are agents for our spare parts range and our replacement transformers range, uh, but they don't sell our new machines. Nitro Pinball, for example, in Canada, sell both. They sell our replacement board range as well as new machines. So uh, they are two separate streams, but on the front page there, they can see our agents. And uh, if, if they go to one of those agents and, and express their interest, uh, they can secure a machine out of the out of the first batch, which may, by the way, be the only batch that goes to each agent. Who knows? It's up to them. I can't force them to take machines. It's what they order. So uh, yep. if they're not ordered, if people don't express their interest, they won't get one. It's as simple as that. Yep. And then the other website, SpinalTapPinball.com. That's actually the website belongs to Highway Pinball in Australia. Uh, they right. look after that. That's got nothing to do with me directly. That's run by Highway Games in Newcastle. And yep. they are our machine agents in Australia. You can contact them directly and they will set you on the right path for a machine. Yep. And That's again, they sell our machines. They don't sell our spare parts. So different right. agents for that. We've got two agents for parts in Australia. That's Pinball Spare Parts Australia in Melbourne, PSPA, and um, uh, Pinball House, H-A-U-S in Brisbane. Indeed. Um, they both sell our spare parts. Oh, Mike, thank you for that. That was a lovely extended chat we had. Bit of and we'll... Let me throw in a bit of new news for you there. Oh, yeah, okay. Don't leave this bit out. Uh, no. <laughs> it, when we were establishing ourselves here, we, we could see the price of things going through the roof because when we sold Thunderbirds, we sold that for around $4,000. And uh, I've got to say, at the end of the day, we basically didn't make any money at all out of that uh, you know, because the costs kept going up, but we were sort of stuck at, at a price point. When we released Spinal Tap, sadly, it, it retails in most places for $9,600. Again, you need to talk to your agent. People keep asking me the price. I can't quote the price because the price in Australia is different to the price in the UK, is different to the price in Canada. All different tax regimes, all different shipping costs. Uh, I can't quote one price fits all. It doesn't work that way. So people need to talk to their local agent about a price and uh, they can go from there. But it offered us the opportunity. I reflected on what had happened to us in China and that we never had the opportunity to overlap because it takes so long to develop a new product. Uh, you know, minimum 12 months to develop a new pinball machine. And uh, we've fortunately had a little bit more grace here and I've been able to secure another license and overlap with Spinal Tap, if you like, so that in a couple of years' time when, when we start running down Spinal Tap, or perhaps a little sooner than that, we will be able to release our new license. Now, the new license comes with quite a lot of, let me call them problems, if you like. The IP is extremely famous and will be well known to everybody unfortunately is owned by about six different players and uh, it's incredibly complex to try and bring all of those players together and um, some of them dislike one another and don't want to talk and it's very very difficult 
So we've opted for a different route and we've opted to deal with the main players and and take on the IP, the main IP. But unfortunately, it doesn't allow us anything. It is, it's a movie theme, I'll give that much away. It doesn't allow us any, any movie clips or quips, clips or quips. And so we've opted, because of the price structure of machines these days, they just basically price themselves out of most people's reach. I mean, I, I personally wouldn't pay $10,000 for a new pinball machine. That's madness. It's just too much. Uh, so we've sharpened our pencil. We've looked at what we can do and looked at what how we can utilise this IP to its best advantage without having the full assets, but still having the IP and the main assets. And so we've decided to go for a cut-down machine that does not have a DMD or a, or a monitor, and it's reverting back to uh, very much a, a Bally SS machine. We're, we're basing our thoughts on that, uh, and uh, and our construction will be on that. It'll be a complete new electronics, and all the software will be done in Taiwan this time round. And um, we so we'll have people in house now to be able to deal with problems immediately. So we can refine things quickly if we need to. And um, we aim to get that price point right down back to a more sensible point where the where the mum and dads can afford to put a pinball back in their back in their games room or their their pool room, if you like. And, and I'm thinking more man cave buyers that that have got a barbecue and a pool table and a and one pinball machine in their home and they, those people are not buying an ACDC for ten thousand dollars. They're just not because ten thousand dollars buys little Johnny his first car. So you know they're not spending that money on a pinball. I don't care what people say because they're just not. And we need to target a market that's basically been left alone. And you mentioned there's a new machine come out that's along the same vein, but I'll bet it's still $10,000. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's Therein is the problem. And uh, again, I stress for all people, and please put this on the record, our machine is not intended for the pinball aficionado, the pinball expert player. No, it's not for you. This is for the home buyer who wants to have a pinball machine at home, and the, they will love the theme. They will love it. And I know the naysayers will come out and go, oh, no, another great theme ruined by home pin. Well, that's tough luck. Uh, we've got a we've got a market for this machine, and this market will love the machine, and and that's how it is. That's life. And if those naysayers don't like that, they're welcome to go and get the license themselves and build a better machine. Go for it. Knock yourselves out. So we're thinking somewhere between twelve and twenty four months, this uh, this new machine will make an appearance. I've made a commitment to the IP owners that I'll show it at next year's Pinball Expo. Ew, in Chicago. And I've never been to America myself. Oh, you will be welcome with open arms. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> so I'm told. <laughs> this will be fascinating. So whether we make it to that, I'm, I'm, that's our goal. We're hoping to make that, and so far, so good. Um, we don't have much IP to play with, so it's all got to be on us to come up with stuff that fits and merges and and it's we're just going to make it a fun machine we're not going to be hung up on whether it's got deep rules that are 10 rules set and you've got to hit this target and stand on one leg and do this and do no no forget that it's not the way it is it's not our machine it's not what we do it's just not what we do and people have got to get this through their heads that home pin doesn't do that that's that we leave that to the other people if jjp uh, spooky stern want to do that knock yourselves out that's great that's your market that's your bag 
fantastic. That's great that there's people that do that and they fill that niche. That's great. Um, we're aiming for a totally different market that that we believe we've we've got enough to make it worth our while, and that's where we're yeah. at. Well, that is a market that is not being tapped at the moment. A sub, uh, we could even say a sub six thousand dollar machine does not exist anywhere in the no, world. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. New involved. Well, our goal, and I don't know whether we can achieve it. Our goal is four nine 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 US dollars retail. Ah, that's our goal. Whether we can get there, it depends on now and when we release as to what happens with the pricing of stuff. Because it's you know, every time we order stuff now, it's gone up ten percent, twenty percent, whatever. It's crazy. It's yeah. just mental how stuff's going up and. Being a small factory, we can't order 10,000 of this and 10,000 of that. We can only order, if we, if we push it, we order 1,000. I mean, I just ordered 1,000 drop target assemblies and we don't need that many. We need 100, not 1,000. And uh, it's just what we have to do. And the problem is is not just the money. I mean, the money is one thing, of course. If you order 1,000 of this and 1,000 of that and 1,000 of something else, suddenly you've got a lot of money out there that you won't be using for quite some time. It's the space. We simply don't have the yeah. space to store all of these parts. It's crazy. You know, a thousand of anything, a thousand pinball rubbers takes up a lot of space. And, mm. uh, you know, times that by a thousand parts, suddenly you've got a huge warehouse just with all the parts sitting in it and nowhere to build anything. So wow. it's a big, big logistical problem for us. And, of course, when you order 100 or 200, you don't get the same price break that you get when you order thousands. That's so right. that, doesn't, that doesn't help us at all. Well, that's, I reckon that, that is great news. Mike, you remind me of the, the monks to just keep hitting themselves in the head with the plank of wood. Yeah. But we thank you for trying and for doing it and providing a, an alternative pinball. And this new, uh, this new news you've dropped gives us even more hope for the future. Uh, I look forward to catching up with you in Newcastle in September at Pinfest, playing the production models of... Spinal Tap at that time, and uh, I'll even have to make a special trip to October uh, in October next year to uh, Expo. Yes, well, there you go. fingers crossed we can get everything together for that. And uh, uh, just a bit further on that package that just got brought in the door before the delivery of parts. I'm just holding here now. It's been unpacked, and I'm holding our new Flipper Link, which is the upgrade ah. to. Uh, to the, the, well, I'm hoping it will fix all of our woes with our flipper thing. The problem was not with the power of the flipper, but the travel of the flipper, as I That's determined. Right. When we put it on the bench and studied them side by side with the Williams mech, the Williams mech had about an extra uh, five degrees of swing on the flipper. So we've effectively duplicated that with ours now, or replicated, if you like, and uh, modified our, our um, plunger. And, um, and it's not a bad, it's a fiberglass link, so it's nice and solid. It won't wear out or melt. Previously, yeah. we uh, moulded our own uh, uh, nylon ones from a special nylon, and they actually melted when the coil got too hot. The link melted, which was a pain. These are fibreglass, not a chance of that melting. It's um, fibreglass and five mil thick. Um, there you go. There you go. Look at that. See, pinball's easy. Yeah. <laughs> pinball's easy if you say it quickly. That's it. <laughs> All right, Mike, you have a good day and thank you again for the chat. No and problem, as I said, we'll, we will have a Newcastle for a beer. Definitely. Best of luck. So there we have it. We now know why Mike loves selling to some countries and not to others. We found out a really good reason to be at Expo next October 2024 to have a look at what title Homepin has secured for the next venture into pinball manufacturing. Love it or hate it, Thunderbirds is out there and being enjoyed by some 
and Spinal Tap is on the way. Thanks to Mike for spending the time, and thanks to you for listening. Please feel free to contact me, Podcast at gmail.com with any feedback, comments, or suggestions for the future. Thanks again for listening. And why not leave you with one of the great Spinal Tap moments? And it seems rather ironic or appropriate, one of the songs from their hit film, This Is Spinal Tap, called America. Just for you, Mike. Catch you next time. We came like babies From a home across the sea To see America And the people who opened up their arms To welcome us To America We came like children Down to us